as we've mentioned before, Paul was in prison, almost certainly in Rome. There are some who make an argument for Ephesus or uh, other places, but they, those arguments have never really taken on a life of their own. It's, it's basically Rome is what most people would say. And he has written a bunch of books and we've taken a look at a couple of them already. Now we're going to leap into Colossians. Very cool little book, but it's also a very mysterious little book. And it's one of the books that you've really got to know the context before you can get anything out of Colossians that Paul wanted to put in there. Oh, you can get life lessons and some people have tried to grab worship rules and such out of there, but you really can't do that unless you know why Paul was writing a book to Colossae. Why Colossae? The fact is Paul is still in prison. Uh, he, this is around the year 60. It really does not help matters to try to fight this down and put a month and date to every one of these books. But it's around the year 60 and Paul will be released from prison in 62. He does not know that now. He has no idea what uh, Caesar's verdict is going to be. He'll be released in 62, but he'll be rearrested in 64. Paul's life was a very hard life. So why would he write to Colossae? Colossae was a tiny town. It was more than a village, but it was a tiny town in central Turkey. It used to be a big town. It used to be very important. It's about 100 miles from Ephesus, about 10 miles from Laodicea, both of which are far more significant cities than Colossae. But it, it, it just used to be a big town. During the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, uh, it was often mentioned as a great noble city. But by the time Paul writes this, its glory days are long gone. You see this sometimes in towns that used to be big market towns that the interstate bypassed. And now there's just not much there. That's Colossae. And actually it's because they changed the road system and no major roads went by Colossae anymore. The Romans didn't need that. And so Colossae's trade and market just faded away. So why write a book to them? Well, smallest, least significant town addressed by Paul in any of his epistles, as far as we know, the ones we have, of all the writings of Paul that we still have, this is to the smallest, least significant church. In fact, it's not even mentioned in Acts at all. We don't know who started the church. We have no background on the history. And it really isn't worth guessing because there aren't enough clues there to, um, to give us even a start. So that makes the letter mysterious already, but it's about to get more mysterious. Paul writes this letter when a guy named Epaphras comes to visit Paul in Rome at his house arrest and tells him of a heresy which is being taught in this tiny little town. A heresy that concerns Paul enough that Paul puts pen to paper or has his secretary do it. It's very unclear what exactly the heresy was. It may have been dabbling in the occult. It looks like it. It was certainly 
a weaving together of Jewish traditions, Old Testament laws, and the occult. And here, I'm, I'm going to try not to be on a soapbox for too long. I've mentioned before that it just astonishes me that some Christians believe that God will like them better if they know a few words in Hebrew and if they uh, buy a shofar and blow it or if they uh, say Amin and they say Yeshua instead of Jesus and that they practice you know kosher, they eat kosher or they go through some of the holy days that God will like them better as Christians when the, Bible, the New Testament makes it very plain, no, that's not necessary now. They, they certainly can be an add-on. I have no problem with people celebrating the holy days of the Old Testament as just an add-on to their worship. But it's when they believe that that makes them special, closer to God, or that it even is required. That's when it goes against every letter Paul wrote. Again, let me stress, the Jews were not thrown away and the Gentiles embraced as the people of God. This is not some substitution of God. God put his arms around the Jews and that they are still around the Jews, but they're also around all of us and all of us are to be centered on Jesus Christ. But for many people, that's not enough. Those of you who are following our worship will remember that on March 6th, I had a sermon called Spit and Ceremony. And if you don't follow, you might want to go back to March, uh, to March 6th and hear the sermon, Spit and Ceremony. There's nothing wrong with ceremony. In fact, there's a, there's, there are a lot of good things that come from ceremony. But when you make that uh, binding, uh, if you make it not even binding as you can't be saved without this ceremony, but even just God will like you better or you'll be more of a Christian if you do the ceremony. Um, Paul has some things to say to you. And so does Jesus, by the way. When he says, love God, love your neighbors yourself, that's what hangs, the, on that hangs everything. He wasn't throwing away the Torah because he had not yet died. He was still a faithful Jew, but he was showing where God's priorities are. You get people such as, and I have no idea where she is spiritually now, and I have no interest in bad-mouthing any human being. This is merely a, an observation, not a criticism, okay? Madonna went on a spiritual journey for years and years into the Kabbalah, which is a rather occult weaving of Jewish thought with numerology and prophecy and symbology and the like. Now again, I don't know if she's still in that or not. She was in it for quite some time. There are a lot of people that are into the Kabbalah, but uh, you will find out that just like Gnosticism, saying that you're into the Kabbalah actually gives no information because there are so many versions of this and none of them are rooted in truth. None of them have a historical lineage that we can go back and see where all the trails of thought came through and then validate or at least measure and question those sources. And remember our Monday mornings are all about who told you and then who told them. <clears throat> Can't do that with these because rather like witchcraft, <clears throat> it seems to be made up of whole cloth. 
the guy that reinvigorated witchcraft in England, you know, writing things like the Golden Bough and the like, made it all up. Uh, and a lot of this is like that. So something like that was going on in Colossae, uh, very centered in Jewish teachings, but mixed with pagan rites and traditions. And they, they were teaching in chapter two that these powers, there are dark, dark powers and there are alternative gods, um, but we, we do need to placate them somehow to keep them off of us. And we need to do some ceremonies, maybe even worship some of them so that they don't hurt us. So Paul comes in. Um, this is kind of a proto-Gnosticism as far as I'm concerned, but as soon as you say that, you get people that just go absolutely berserk and they'll say, there weren't Gnostics until 90 AD or 110 AD. When the fact is, if you read the epistles of John, you see Gnosticism being addressed there unless you choose not to. And in my lifetime, I see almost every decade scholars are moving Gnosticism earlier. <clears throat> Excuse me. Once again, I'm recording, so I'll choke up. If you're wondering what Gnosticism is, uh, I would suggest to you that it takes a lifetime to study it and you'll end up with headaches and ulcers and still not really grasp it because there are different rivers. But Gnosticism, is, uh, the word actually means you know, this knowledge. You know, we, we worship the knowledge. The, the knowledge saves us. And there are different branches. One would say that the God that created all material things is not the good God. Uh, the good God is the Father of Jesus Christ. The God that created all things created this evil world and our evil nasty bodies that have nasty stuff that comes out of them. And uh, the, they, these bodies want to do nasty stuff with nasty people. So we must punish the body and we must reject the world. Another form of Gnosticism agreed with all of this except for the last and said, because of that, because we know that we are holy and that we serve the right God, our, it doesn't matter what our bodies do. We can have sex with anything that moves and have the things that don't, and we can get drunk and we can be gluttons because it doesn't matter because our bodies, what saves us is our knowledge that, of what is true and divine. So you had all of this, and those are just two of the streams. So why did Paul write this amazing little book? A few reasons. One, to show his interest in the church in Colossae. Every so often, uh, a little church will ask me to come and speak to them, and if at all possible, I get there. And then somebody in there may even say, how, why does somebody who's you know, got this big platform and you preach for all these big churches, why would you come to a little church like this? And the answer is, those little churches raised me. Those little churches are raising others. They are hugely important. This, this group of two families in this, in this house, this group of 30 people trying to hold it together over here, this group of 110 over here, which has been 110 forever, or maybe they had glory days when they were 130, but they're 100. Those are very important churches. <clears throat> they are feeder systems of faith for the next generation. So Paul's interested in this church and he takes time to write it. He also wants to warn them against their return to pagan habits, pagan ideas, and the interweaving of paganism and Christianity. He also wants to refute the false teaching uh, that has worked Judaism into this pretty interesting mix. And he also wants to proclaim, as um, Curtis Vaughn put it in his 
book on Colossae, The Absolute Supremacy and the Soul Sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Or as Robertson put it in his book on Colossians, the, this is a full-length portrait of Christ. So, that said, you've got some context. <clears throat> Let's have a look. Be reading out of the NIV, the 2001 edition, uh, I'm sorry, 2011 edition, which I find um, quite readable. Uh, do I always love it? No, but I'll let you know if I don't love it. And I'll also tell you the why, because I'm not a Greek person. Um, I don't read it, I'm not a scholar of it. I'll tell you which scholars have helped me question it. Is that fair? Okay. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Standard introduction. Let's move on. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. That's, you see, of first importance, these people love others. Moving on, the faith and, and love that spring from the hope that is stored up in you in heaven, for you in heaven, and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. See the setup? He's saying, you're good people. You love well. You have great faith. And there's great hope stored up for you in heaven. God's on your side, I'm on your side. And your minister has come to me and he has told me about your love and your faith and that you are good people. Let this be a lesson. If you have a disagreement with somebody, even if it is a very deep, serious disagreement, go in and first of all, let them know that they are valued as a human being and that what aspects of their life and character that you really admire. It also helps, by the way, Paul doesn't do this right here, he does it in other places, to then also lay on the table that you are a fallible human being and that you could be very wrong about what you think is wrong in the other. But do it honestly and sincerely, not as a cloak or a tactic because people can notice that, they'll see it. They'll see right through it. And this wasn't a tactic. Paul absolutely adored people who hated him. If you read Philippians 1 again, we just finished Philippians. He says, I don't even care if they're preaching Christ in order to make it harder for me in prison, as long as Christ is preached. How very different from the precision, legalistic righteousness of many churches today. Ah, but moving on. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Again, knowledge and wisdom are two different things. Knowledge is, are, are things that you know, whether it is concrete things like that's a chair or whether it's a philosophy, it's, that's, those are things you've been taught. Wisdom is knowing how to use it and put it together. 
And then he throws in understanding, which is actually another form of intelligence in that it is, um, should I be using this right now? In other words, just because you can say it, should you? Just because you can do it, should you? And that's really up to you. All right. Um, he goes, we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Now, dominion. This is our first clue of what Paul is going to address. The dominion of darkness is a Jewish phrase, a very Semitic phrase, to say the evil powers and the people who follow the evil powers, which of course was the government back then. And, and I would hasten to add that that's not changed that much uh, in most places and times. But any area which is darkness, and he said, we have been freed from now remember I told you that they, they were evidently trying to placate and maybe even worship a couple of these dark things to keep them from attacking them. And Paul's saying, no, we are freed from the dark things. We're free from the dominion of the dark and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Past tense, we, were, we are already in the kingdom. The devil, one of his greatest tricks is to convince you that you might not be there yet or that being in the kingdom does not protect you from darkness. Darkness can get us in a variety of ways. I could get hit by a drunk driver. Uh, we could be killed in our beds by a bomb from a, a, an evil empire. All, yes, but if you decide to get together with your friends and, and make a, a hex and a voodoo doll or santoria or witchcraft or any of these, and then and pray or to pray to Satan that he will attack me. I'm not afraid of any of that at all. The devil can hurt me, but your silly hexes and curses don't at all. We're in the kingdom of light. Paul wants to make that very clear. Then he goes, and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption again, is um, um, to buy back. We were slaves. We were in hostile territory in the dominion of darkness, but we have been liberated. We have been freed. We have been brought, bought back at a price. In fact, in some early versions, it says redemption through his blood. So it actually gives the price there. So remember who you were and who you are and the why. It's really important. So now we move on. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Okay, a couple things. Um, the image of the invisible God, that reminds me of Hebrews chapter one. And if you've not read it recently, please read this first, read Hebrews one, come back and read this passage again. It is a theme of Paul and whoever wrote Hebrews but um, we often lose it. When I was a boy, and I don't think they meant to teach it this way, all right? I think the people that taught me were very good people. So 
I, I, I really want to make sure you understand I'm not slandering. This is the impression I got was that God was angry. He could be loving, but I knew he was pretty angry at me, even at six, seven, eight years old. And then Christ comes down. And Christ is our mediator. He stands between us and God, which is true. Then I was told, well, it's like going to court and the devil is there to speak against you. They're the prosecuting attorney. God is there to judge you. Jesus is your lawyer. No, no, the devil doesn't get a say in this. The devil doesn't get to enter this anymore. That ended sometime during the lifetime of Christ because he says, I saw Satan thrown from heaven. He's not up there like he was in Job. Jesus is not standing between you and God going, Dad, Dad, now, now calm down, Dad. He's not doing that. If you want to know what Almighty God looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what he sounds like, listen to Jesus. If you want to know what he, how he handles a woman who's living with a man, but she's already had several husbands and she's kind of a difficult person, look at Jesus who sought her out and loved her. If you're wondering, how, what does God think about prostitutes? What does he think about religious people? What does he think about people who might be forced into collaborating with a foreign power just to stay alive? All of our sins, what about the drunks? What about, look at Jesus. Because Jesus is what God looks like. That's the whole point. And then he goes to the firstborn over all creation. Now that word in Greek, and I've talked to so many, and I've read so many books on this, um, has caused some people to grab it and say, see, Jesus is not co-eternal with God because he was born. There was a point to be born. There has to be a period in which you were not born. Human logic there, that makes perfect sense. Except that this was a, an expression used to mean uh, uh, the, the one who is preeminent above. You see, in those days, the firstborn got everything. Uh, it wasn't fair, but it was a way for families to, to uh, stay you know, a unit for, for generations and millennia, not, maybe not millennia, but for centuries. Uh, the firstborn getting everything, therefore all the others were dependent upon the firstborn, and they would have to stay around the firstborn and remain family cohesion. It doesn't, in my mind and in the mind of most scholars who've looked at the word and most of them who've written, it does not mean that there was a period of time that there was no Jesus and then God birthed him out of himself. That story is not a story we find in scripture. I have friends who believe that and I believe that they are still saved Christian people. I believe that if God needed us to believe a certain precise set of doctrines around the Trinity, he would have laid them out very plainly. As it is, we are farmers in the field trying to glean from here and there to put it together. The way I put it together, I see this as he is the preeminent one God has placed him. Remember Philippians 2, because he was obedient, God placed him over all things. Uh, by the way, Jehovah's Witnesses have fallen upon this as one of their proof texts. And so just be aware it's there. And if you want to look into it, there are all sorts of resources uh, that you may 
of which you may avail yourself. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. To me, this kills the concept that Jesus was created or birthed or halved out of an almighty God in any way. Because look at the absolute words here. Um, the training and therapy that I had and, and the counseling practice that I did, as, as, as all therapists, you grab from various modalities. But my preeminent one was rational emotive therapy. And one of the things that they teach you, as well as in behaviorism and there's cognitive therapy, they also do, uh, is to look out, uh, throw flags up in the air every time you hear absolute words like all, none, always, must, never, have to, should, those type of words. Look at all the absolute terms here. For by him, Christ, all things were created. If Christ was created, that sentence is not true because it doesn't just say on earth. It says in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Now, if you're thinking here, well, that just means the heavens. It almost never did in the ancient world. It meant more, but Paul goes further to make sure you're disabused of that notion. All things in heaven on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, those were Semitic words, Semitic terms for what we would call angels, demons, devils, powers. Any other power out there other than the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That we, that those were the terms. And he says, there are none of those that weren't created by Jesus. So where did Satan come from? He was created by Jesus. Was he Satan at creation? No. He made a choice, he went that way, so did other angels. We usually call them demons, but that's not always what they're called in scripture. Again, uh, even angels have free choice, but angels don't have a plan of redemption that we can see. They don't, you know, because of what they've seen evidently, because of what they've witnessed, to turn their back on that, there is no coming back for them. At least that's our understanding. God can do what God wants to do, and we're gonna go, yay God, because it's gonna be good for us. We're gonna love it, because he loves us. So again, he is before all things. He is, and all things hold together. Now I don't want to go, well, that's a lie. I really want to go all Mr. Science on you here, but I don't want to bore you, so I'm not going to. There are uh, foundational required forces in the universe. And we've got a problem. Relativity, the theory of relativity, uh, tries to answer the problem one way, but it doesn't really work. So quantum physics answers it another way, but it doesn't really work because they both answer the same question in fundamentally different ways. And yet they are both required for what we now know for the universe to make sense. So let me just put this way. Dark matter and dark energy make up over 90% of the universe. Most estimates are closer to 97% of the universe. We have never seen dark matter or dark energy. What we see are their effects. That part we can get down, but there's another part. There's another part. And that is 
we don't see anything out there that explains why we have the gravity we have in the universe. And we're trying to answer it, but everything we've tried, string theory, uh, again, relativity, uh, any form of quantum physics and standard physics, none of these have explained it. And I think I was already looking at this when I was in second grade. We, uh, the teacher, brought in this adult size plastic model that you could take off bits of it and there are the guts. So I'm in, you know, and we're all gathered around sitting on the floor. And she said, now we're having a nurse come in and the nurse is gonna to talk to us about the human body. Oh, this is very cool. And then she looks directly at me for some reason, second grade, and says, now we don't want any of you to bother her with stupid questions. <laughs> yeah, she really said that. And she was really looking at me and I had like, uh, I had no idea what you're talking about. And I really didn't. I wasn't a smart, like, a smart aleck kid. I really didn't get it. So the nurse comes in and she's showing us bits. I am all in. I am so all in. This is so much better than reading a Jack and Jill book. So then she comes to the heart and she says something. She goes, now the heart, if the heart stops beating, then you're not alive anymore. So we, the heart has to beat for you to be alive. She started to move on. Sorry, you don't just throw that on the table and walk away. So my hand went up and she called on me and I said, what makes the heart beat? And she said it was a good question, by the way. I really want Miss Parmalee to hear that. She said it was a good question. So she said, well, uh, the brain sends a signal to the heart for it to beat. And she's correct. It's actually the part of the brain right back there. Um, and it takes care of all that without us thinking about it. So thank you, God. Uh, but my hand went right back up again. Miss Parmalee's behind her giving her, you know, doing that. She didn't do this. That was just, I am implied in her eyes. Um, and she said, well, you know, rather I said, what tells the brain to tell the heart? See, already I was doing that. who told you, who told you thing. And she goes, I really don't know. And then she moved on and I'm sitting there having an existential crisis because what if my brain forgets to tell my heart to beat? It could happen in any second. I've not been given any parameters in which case, in, in which that would happen or would not happen. Therefore, the world is just one big dangerous minefield of the brain forgetting to do something for 30 seconds and little Patrick falls over. Already I was looking for what holds this together. What is keeping us in one place? We know what happens if we ram two atoms together and split them or if we split one, fission or fusion, we get atomic weapons or we get a sun. What's holding all this together? Now, atheists will call this special pleading or um, they will refer to it as um, uh, the God in the box because we're saying, well, we don't know how it happens, but so God must be the one that makes it happen. And, and I, I get that point, I really do. Uh, and I wouldn't call that a silly argument. I'm just going to say, we do that with God. They do that with dark matter. We see the effects of God. We see the footprints of God. They see the footprints of dark energy. 
We have to determine, however, with all that we know, who holds it together. To me, this passage is beautiful, but he's not done. We're going to go for a few more minutes, all right? We try to keep these under 40 minutes because I know you've got a life. And I know that if you were going to a church somewhere and having a Wednesday night Bible class, say, you would probably have the class portion for 40 or 45 minutes. And the other 15 minutes is, is usually prayer and um, announcements and then division into classes. So try not to put an extra burden on anybody, all right? He, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. We looked a lot of that, didn't we? We looked at a lot of that in Ephesians. The firstborn from among the dead. So he once again is among, he was in the dead. He was the first one to rise. And then, you know, we know other people were raised from the dead, but by his power, he was raised from the dead. He's also the preeminent. He is over all of the dead. Why is this important? Because when you worship dark things, one of the things you end up doing is talking to dead people. Uh, I, I still run across mediums and people who are convinced that they talk to dead people. By the way, there's nothing wrong with talking. If you've been, you were married for like 30 years and your husband died or your wife died, there's nothing wrong with talking to them. But we understand that they're not going to come and sit in our room and have a conversation. That uh, God has a different way of dealing with things. So. Christ is the one who is over all the dead. So what if, what if, remember Galatians, what if we get an angel come to us, a messenger from the dead, and tell us something different than Jesus told us? Paul says, let them be accursed. Paul's very consistent. Jesus rules the living and the dead. So don't let the dead ever come back and convince you otherwise. You may not have that problem. I certainly don't have that problem. Some people in Colossae evidently did. So, so that in everything he may have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There is no way around it. That passage absolutely teaches that God will not be satisfied until all physical things and all spiritual things are reconciled to him. Is that universalism in some point, in some ways? Yes. God is not here. He did not create all of this to save 0.001% of humans. God is in this to reconcile all of us back to the family. It's going to be a few months before we can actually start on that journey on our Monday morning sessions. So just keep tuned in. Those are usually 20 minutes or less. So they're kind of bite size. Um, so just pay attention there. All right. We're going to uh, go a little bit more in chapter one. We'll go a little faster uh, next week. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds, because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Now, physical body. The Gnostics, and again, this is too early for what we generally call Gnosticism, but the proto-Gnostic, the pre-Gnosticistic thought has been around for a long time. 
And the idea that Jesus was in a human body that sweated, that had to pee, all of this was might have had bad breath, lost a tooth, that was very offensive to those who wanted God to be pristine and untouched. So Paul and me kind of slips it in here pretty fast. Because of his physical body, he reconciled us through, you know, to present to you in his sight, while this sounds so much like Ephesians 5, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. The gospel is not a hammer. The gospel is not a knife to gut you. The gospel is not there to do anything but give you hope, joy, peace, and then release you to a life of love. If the gospel has been presented to you in any other way, that is not the gospel of Christ. Join us at our safe harbor to find the gospel, but we're not the only ones who have it. And a lot of you go to amazing churches or have amazing Bible study groups and you already know all this. Uh, if you continue in your faith, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Okay, that's called hyperbole. It means this is, the, this is the gospel, the only one going out, the only one out there, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now, next week, more. We'll pick it up at chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 24, next week. I hope you have a wonderful week. God bless you. Please subscribe, hit the like bell, tell your friends. We're getting close to 3,000 subscribers and that's very exciting. And we'd like to hit that mark sometime in March. Um, by the way, Lent has already started by the time you hear this. If you have given up something for Lent, if you observe Lent, uh, know that we're praying that you can keep your promises. It's very difficult in a time of division and wars and rumors of wars. If you do not celebrate it, also we're praying that you will be faithful, you will be strong. Easter's around the corner. Hope. It's a good thing. Have a great week.